Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Hey, if you have a Bible, open up with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6 this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll make sure you get one. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And uh, I believe that we're about uh, three Sundays away from Share Sunday. Lord willing, assuming that I get through the passages the way that I believe that I will. But uh, Share Sunday again is just what has the Lord been doing in your life through the book of 1 Timothy. Every time we close a book, we want to give the body an opportunity to share with the body what God is doing through his word in our lives. And so if, you're, um, if that was the first time you ever heard of that last week when I mentioned it, hey, listen, this is an opportunity for you to share what the Lord is doing in your life through his word. And we want to encourage you. And by the way, it's only like five minutes, you know, five, five minutes, depending on how many people we have, max ten minutes. Not a lot of time. We just would love to hear what the Lord is doing. It's, it's not about the length. It's just really about the power of the word of God in our lives and how it can transform us. And, uh, you know, I want to hear it. I know our body loves to hear uh, what God is doing in, in, in you know, your, your lives respectively. So make sure that. You're prepared for that. I'll let you know the exact Sunday it will be, like a Sunday before, but you can start preparing now. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Stand with me. We are verse by verse through the book of 1 Timothy, and we find ourselves entering the very last chapter this morning. 1 Timothy 6, beginning in verse 1. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God... And the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have uh, believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. But rather, they must serve all the better. Since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Father, we thank you for your word today. Lord, we ask you to speak into our lives. This is a very relevant topic that we will speak about today, Lord, how it directly impacts us on a daily basis. Lord, help us to hear your voice. Let us drown out anything else, Father. May you get our full attention. We open our hearts to you now, Lord. Will you speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you don't mind I ask that for you on behalf of you, that the Lord would just speak to your heart. That's the point. We've been talking about the family of God and our responsibilities to one another in the past three weeks. And that was the main theme of chapter 5. And as we move into chapter 6 this morning, Paul will address how the family of God is to be behave, listen, outside the four walls of the church. We, we, you remember when I first introduced the book, I said really the theme of the book is how we ought to behave as the family of God. Not just to one another, but also outside the church. And now Paul is sort of, in, in chapter 6, it's sort of a collage of different things going on here. But he does want us to understand what our responsibility is as believers outside of the four walls of the church. Specifically, how it relates to our workplace. How it relates to our workplace. It totally makes sense for Paul to address this topic because... Uh, majority of believers will spend at least one-third of their waking hours 
uh, of their entire life with their coworkers. You will spend approximately a third of your entire life with a different family than your family at home. And your coworkers, it's a, in a sense sort of a, a family. Uh, one third of our lives are spent sleeping. That only leaves one third of your life for everything else. You would be surprised about how much time you spend brushing your teeth and all of these sorts of little things. Uh, the point of the matter, and you've heard it before, is that we spend probably more time with our coworkers than we do actually our families that we live with. And so we, it's a very relevant topic when we start to begin to think about what our responsibility is to God when we go outside of the four walls of the church and how we represent ourselves. It's very, very important. Paul specifically is addressing slaves and how they're to treat their masters in the passage. We're applying this to sort of what's going on in our world today and that as it relates to the employee-employer relationship. So that's where we find ourselves. Now, here's the thing. There is a gigantic misunderstanding as it relates to work in our culture and the Christian faith. What do I mean? Well, let me illustrate it for you. Uh, th these are participative questions, so I need you to raise your hand. How many of you uh, work because you have to work? Anybody here? Like if you had a gazillion dollars sitting in the bank, you would not work. You would be on the beach somewhere else doing something else, but you would not be at work. Okay, so, so a lot of you guys. How many of you guys uh, work because you like to work? You're just really, you know, you're, you're seriously insane. Like, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But you, you like to work. Like, it, you know, you, you enjoy it. it. It fulfills you in some way. How many of you have no idea why you're here this morning? You're just like, I don't even know where I'm at. I'm not sure what's going on. Okay, we'll pray for you. That, that we'll, we'll definitely pray for you. But uh, you know, how we, how we answer this question sort of reflects our view of work and uh, how, how we understand it, and specifically as, as Christians. What is work to the Christian? I think that you're going to find that work is more important than you think. And, you know, contrary to popular belief, work itself was not part of the curse in the fall of man. Did you know that? Work was not part of... Uh, the, the, the curse that God gave when men fell. We were designed to work. There is incredible purpose in our work. Specifically, work is meant to bring glory to God. Your work, in, in, in some way, shape, or form, is meant to glorify the Father. It doesn't matter what you're doing. You know, whatever that might be, you know, you're working, Paul says, as unto the Lord. Colossians chapter 3. Verses 18 through 24. Listen to the language of this. Listen to the family aspects of it. And then how he bridges that out into everything. Wives, submit to your husbands as fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything. For this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Verse 22. Bondservants. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fear, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, whether you're a father, a mother, a child, whatever you do outside, whether you're a slave, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, 
knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. Listen, you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. How much importance does your work, the way that you work, how important is that, do you think? According to this, it's everything. For you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to do everything that we do for the glory of God. That includes work. So listen, if you feel you're at a dead-end job and you make widgets for a living, make them unto the glory of God. You know, if you clean toilets for a living, clean them for the glory of God. If you beg groceries, beg them for the glory of God. The, the point is not so much in what you're doing, it's why you're doing it. To the glory of God, whatever you do. This means, of course, that every Christian everywhere should be the absolute best employee that any employer employs, period. If you call yourself a Christian, you should be the best employee that employer has ever seen. You step into this because you're not doing it for the paycheck. You're not doing it for the job. You're doing it unto the glory of God. Does that put work in a different category? Of course it does. We, we are to do everything we do, including our jobs, for the glory of God. Christian, let me ask you, does your work reflect the kind of glory you desire to give the Lord? That's a very reflective question. We want to give that some thought as we uh, work our way through this passage. God has intended from the beginning of time uh, for you and I to be workers. Again, I said it's not a result of the curse. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Listen to this. The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Man had a job from day one to work and to keep the garden. God's intentions from the beginning were for Adam and Eve to be fully responsible and govern over the land. Genesis 1, verse 28, where we find it says, God blessed them, Adam and Eve. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, listen, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on earth. Adam and Eve, the, 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 the specific thing I want to draw your attention to is that they were called to subdue the land. To subdue it. What does that mean? The word subdue means to tread down, to beat, to make a path. They were called to bring the land under their control. That was their job. And in so doing, they would bring glory to God. Now, pre-fall, I think work was probably a little bit different. It was probably, you know, you probably enjoy, you whistled while you worked, you know. You're one of those little guys and, you know, and, and you're just, were they happy all the time? I think they probably were. But post-fall, work became more difficult. I mean, it's clear in the scripture, Genesis 3, verse 17 through 19. And to Adam, he said, you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. You shall not eat of. Cursed is the ground because of you. He was called to subdue the ground. Now the ground is cursed as a result of what he's done. In pain you shall eat all of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Work became incredibly harder post-fall. 
But understand, our purpose in work has never changed. He never said in that moment, oh, by the way, do it for your own self now, or do it for your own self-satisfaction, or, or do it to make a paycheck. No, it's still unto the glory of God. It was meant, work is meant to bring glory to God, even post-fall, although it will become more difficult. Some of you who raise your hand and you're like, I love to work. It, it could possibly be that you love to work because that's where you find your identity. That's where you find your self-satisfaction. That is the wrong end to your work. The, the, the right end to your work is to the glory of God. Some of you who say, I don't want to work. I, I would rather do something else. Maybe you have a misunderstanding, uh, of, a misview of what work is. Because it's, it's not about, you know, we're not here on this earth all the days of our lives for ourselves. For our, for our own ease, pleasure, and comfort. We are here to bring glory to God. And so we want to maximize that and do whatever it is that he puts before us, including our work. Work is meant to be worshipped. We need to have a correct view of work if we ever hope to apply what Paul is saying here in our passage this morning. Uh, many, in, many in our culture, including Christians, don't see their jobs in the correct way. And thus, they don't work with the right mindset. Many see work as simply a means to an end, finding no real value in the work itself, but only for what they can obtain through it. Uh, according to a recent Gallup poll, 15% of employees worldwide are engaged in their work. 15%. You know what that means? That means that 85% of people don't care what they're doing, and put little effort into it. 85% of employees don't care what they're doing and put little effort into it. Uh, that, those statistics change a little bit for the United States. 30% of Americans are, are engaged in their work. 70% of Americans are disengaged, caring little about what they're doing and putting little effort into their job. Some of those 70% include Christians. Some of the 70% uh, include Christians. I hope that you are of the 30% of Americans that are engaged in your job, understanding why you're engaged in your job, not for the end result of getting the paycheck or whatever it is, although that's important, but it's because you're a believer and you want to represent the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, there's many, many Christians that would love to quote the, the classical theologian Johnny Paycheck, you know, take this job and shove it. I ain't working here no more. Many Christians would love to say that to their, to their, to their bosses. And listen, there's a ton of reasons why you might want to say that. I'm not here to tell you whether that's the right attitude in your situation. What, what I'm here to tell you is that whatever you do, no matter where you find yourself in life, whatever you do, do it unto the glory of God. And when you can't do that any longer, perhaps you need to look within first and say, Lord, is there a heart problem inside of me? And then secondly, Lord, are you calling me somewhere else? Don't assume because you are, you are dissatisfied with where you are that the Lord say, no, I, I want you to leave. Don't assume that. Ask him, Lord, is there something I need to change in my own heart, in my life? Help me to know the difference between what I want and what you want. Your will be done. Listen, we have responsibility to represent the Lord everywhere we go, and in particular, 
our workplace. I, I'm telling you what, your bosses probably need my email for today's sermon because they're going to be super pleased with me. They're going to be like, wow, I've never seen this person work so far. It's Tim. At, no, I'm just kidding. If there's complaints, you can send it to Pastor Mike, you know. But, but the context of our passage is relating to slaves and masters. The application for us is employees and how the employee is to treat their employer. But the exegesis of the passage requires us to consider the institution of slavery because that's the context. That's what he's talking about. In this particular time, in this particular day, uh, slavery was a huge thing in the Roman Empire. It was estimated that there were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire as Paul wrote this letter to Timothy. To put that into perspective, that would be an estimation of around one-third to one-half of the Roman population at that time. It was that, that was, there was that many slaves. The population was probably 150 to 200 uh, million people at the time there. And, you know, at least one-third to one-half of those were slaves. Some of the Roman governors got together and, and thought it might be a good idea to mark which ones were slaves and which ones weren't. So when you were out on the marketplace or whatever, you could identify, oh, there's a slave, there's a not a slave. Uh, they were going to put a white band around their arm. When they got to thinking about it, they thought about how, much, how dense the slave population was in Rome that they thought, whoa, if we identify them, they'll identify themselves and start a revolt against us. They would realize that they, they, are, we, they far outpower us. And so they decided not to, not to do that, which probably makes a lot of sense. That would have been an, an epic political fail there. But slave, slaves did revolt, and they did collectively come together and do those kind of things multiple times um, in the Roman Empire. When we think of the word slave in our culture, in our day, it means something different, a, a, a lot different than really the biblical understanding of, of a slave in a lot of ways. But in particular, when we hear the word slave, we immediately our mind goes to racial bias, right? That, that's our understanding of slavery in the United States is racial bias, you know, the African-American slave trade that happened in our country. That isn't really the idea of slavery in the Bible. There were all kinds of, uh, there were all, all different races were slaves. There were all kinds of different uh, social backgrounds for slaves. There were all kinds of reasons why people would be slaves. Some slaves were well-educated. Some slaves were illiterate. There was really no racial uh, bias in, in the biblical time when we're talking about slavery there. There was not really any kind of a, um, it wasn't because of a person's color. All people, white, black, yellow, orange, they were all, anyone could be a slave during this time. Even the blue men, they could be slaves too. They had musicians that were slaves. So uh, some were slaves as a result of war. Some were slaves as a result of human trafficking. You, you see that story with Joseph where he was sold into slavery by his own brothers. The idea there, human trafficking. Yet others were slaves because they owed a debt that they couldn't pay. While others became slaves because it was simply a way for them to make a living in their culture. So there was a, a lot of different reasons why uh, people were slaves. 
But, you know, when we think about slavery in America, we think about the abuses and the institution of slavery and, and, and you know, the racial bias and all of these kinds of things. And I'm not here to support slavery whatsoever. I'm here to report on what the Bible has to say about slavery and, and as it relates to that. Uh, there, for sure, many slaves were treated well. And most certainly, some of them were not. You know, so, so it all depends on the, the, the person, the, their master. It's interesting, if you've ever had a conversation with somebody who is agnostic or atheist, one of the things that they generally go to almost immediately is how can I believe a God who condones slavery, right? You ever had that kind of a conversation with somebody? People who bring up all the social issue, issues in our culture and they say, well, how can I believe a God that, you know, this or that? But one of those topics relates to slavery, and they say, uh, you know, how can I, I, I don't, how can I believe in, in, in a Bible that condones the institution of slavery? They're trying to discredit the word of God. And, and so, you know, what we need to understand is, does the Bible actually condone slavery? The answer is no, it does not. The Bible also doesn't prohibit slavery. God doesn't say slavery is, you know, is condoned by the Lord. He also doesn't say that it's prohibited either it, it's kind of one of these situations where you know the, the lord uh the lord speaks about the topic relating to the person no matter what side you're on if you're a master if you're if you're a slave you have a responsibility to act a certain way particularly if you're a christian right and so that's really how he addresses it you know the bible talks about divorce you know and, and what does the bible talk about the divorce does the lord condone divorce not really. The Bible says that God hates divorce. And yet, God ha has, has he, he doesn't prohibit divorce either, does he? It's kind of one of those topics. It's sort of in that same kind of parameters. The Lord gives parameters relating to the subject, but he doesn't necessarily put his hand of approval on it and say, yeah, that's, that's definitely from me. He also doesn't necessarily say that's absolutely wrong. You know why God gave uh, divorce as, as an option for us? The Bible says it clearly. Jesus told us because of the hardness of your heart. That sounds like the Lord says, I understand the unforgiveness of man and the, uh, the, the, the unwillingness to, to reconcile. And so I am gonna, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to allow this. It's almost in that category. It's not like the Lord is condoning it. He's not prohibiting it, but he's saying, that's not my best. That's not what I want. It's that, that kind of an idea when we relate, when we're talking about the subject of slavery. God put parameters around it. He speaks about it. He talks about how a slave, in, in multiple passages in the New Testament, multiple passages in the Old Testament, how slaves are to relate to their masters. We also consider how masters are to relate to their slaves. For example, if you were a slave and you were abused, you were to be set free according to uh, Exodus chapter 21, verses 26 and 27. At the same time, if you became married while enslaved to, to another slave in your house, when you left, you couldn't necessarily take your spouse with you until they were, their time was up or whatever the case might be. God put parameters around all kinds of different things like this to protect the rights of both the slave and the master. When Jewish folks, you know, back in the Old Testament, when Jewish folks were down on their luck, they could literally sell themselves over to one of their brothers for a period of six years. 
But the Bible says after the sixth year, in the seventh year, that the, the one who purchased that person was to set them free. It was, it was a way for them to get out of a situation that they were in financially. Maybe they weren't able to, you know, um, pay a debt or whatever the case might be. They were able to make a living through somebody else. But it was for a specific amount of time, for six years, and then they would be set free. What we have to understand when it relates to slavery is that it was a huge topic of conversation from the beginning of time. It, it has always been a huge topic of conversation from the beginning of time. The Lord has spoken relating to it. But more importantly, what we need to understand as it relates to us is how Christianity changed uh, and, and made an impact on slavery in the Roman culture. Slaves and masters, when they got saved, it totally changed the dynamics of their relationship. And, and then Paul, because so many masters and slaves were getting saved, he addresses it in the word of God here in 1 Timothy chapter 6 when he tells Timothy, listen, we need to talk about these things relating to slaves and masters because people are getting saved. And they don't know what the, how they're supposed to act now as a result of that. And so Paul addresses it in our passage today. Listen, some slaves, when, when they got saved, they, they would go and serve in a church and they would maybe even be over their master in the church. You know, they would, they would in some way, shape, or form. And, and so Paul wanted to give us some understanding re regarding the dynamics of that and how they're to relate to believing and unbelieving uh, masters. They still had a responsibility. And, and we see this illustrated so clearly. Anybody ever read the book of Philemon? So, so the, the book of Philemon, just a high-level view of that is the book is about a slave owner whose slave ran away. His name was Onesimus. And Onesimus ran, to, ran away and he found himself in Rome where Paul was imprisoned. Somehow he got saved. Maybe it was through Paul's ministry or whatnot. He got saved and then Paul got the backstory on Onesimus and understood that he was a slave. That he was owned by a brother named Philemon. And so Paul begins to tell Onesimus Listen, the biblical thing to do is to go back to your master. That's what you're supposed to do. Hey, listen, being a Christian is far more difficult, folks, than not being a Christian. Because the responsibility to do the right thing doesn't matter what the subject is. Like, like he said, hey, you're a slave. You need to go back to your master. And so what Paul does is he does not send Onesimus empty-handed back to his master. Paul writes a letter. It's the book of Philemon. That letter is to Philemon, uh, hand-carried by Onesimus, to hand it to him when he showed back up at the door. How amazing is that? If you read the letter, you'll see the expression of Christ through that letter where, where Paul steps into the gap on behalf of Onesimus and he says, whatever he owes you, I will pay. But he relates to Philemon, don't you ever forget the grace that has been given to you. Don't forget who you were and who you are and how God has forgiven you. Onesimus is a brother. That means he has responsibility beyond the culture and, and his title and all of those kinds of things. He has a different responsibility. It's a beautiful letter. I encourage you to read that. Um, but the impact of Christianity on slavery um, was so, so great that by the second century, slavery was almost completely obliterated in the Roman culture. 
And in fact, Ray Steadman said, slavery had widely disappeared, largely because of the impact of Christian teaching and influence of Christians throughout the empire. I've always said this, and I'll continue to say this. The best way to deal with social issues in our culture is not legislation. It's through the gospel. If you change people's hearts and you change the way that they think about things, you will change the social problems. You know, we, we, we don't stand up here and speech, speak about a social gospel. We talk about the real gospel. And the real gospel changes people's lives, and that will take care of itself. Yes, there are problems in our culture today. The way that we deal with that is through the word of God and allowing the word of God to change the way that we think about other people. Let your mind be transformed, the Bible says. You know, we have to change the way that we see things. And when we do, through the word of God, God will deal with a lot of those social issues. The atheist argument of slavery as it relates to a reason of not believing in God or discounting the word of God is null and void if you have a correct understanding of, of the biblical view of slavery and, and God not necessarily condoning it or prohibiting it. The Lord speaks about the personal responsibility of every person depending on who they are, if they're a slave or a master. The primary focus of how we're going to look at this is, again, related to you and I as employees to employer, what our responsibility is to our employers. For, there's two different, uh, different masters he speaks about. He speaks about a non-believing master and then a believing master. We'll consider first our responsibility to a non-believing master. Look at verse 1. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may, be, may not be reviled. Paul begins this section here where uh, speaking about slaves who have been transformed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and their re responsibility uh, to rightly represent God in the workplace, particularly when their master was not a believer. So he's putting a, an incredible emphasis upon the slave who is serving under a person who is not a believer at all. And, and, uh, and so it's... it's can be very applicable to you. Maybe you are in a workplace and your boss is not a believer. Well, this applies directly to you. How are you to relate to your unbelieving boss? Listen up. Paul says the mandate for the believing slave is to regard their own master as worthy of all honor. To regard him, meaning to hold a view, to have an opinion regarding something. Paul is establishing the view Believers are to have over someone, listen, who exercises authority over them. They are to regard them as worthy of all honor. Immediately, our flesh may respond totally different than, than that, than to consider somebody worthy as honor. Our flesh says, only if they deserve it though, right? Isn't that how we think? Isn't that your immediate reaction to something? Uh, when, when, there's, when, when we're told to do something, we immediately relate it to how we're being treated. No? Or yes? Most of us, that's our, our, our initial reaction. If you don't do that, you're way more spiritual than I am. So, you know, the reality is we have a battle with our flesh, right? And so we have to bring our flesh into subjection 
every word that comes into our brain, everything that we think, we have to immediately take into, take into captivity and make it subject to the Spirit of God. And so when, when your, your boss tells you, hey, you need to do that, and you're just like, whoa, whoa, the right response in the Spirit would be whatever you say. I, I will do whatever you say as long as it doesn't lead you to sin. Right? You're, you're submitting to the authority that is put on you. That is the real issue here. The real issue in it, as it's relating to this is not necessarily ownership, but it's authority. That's ultimately what Paul is addressing here. He's saying when somebody has some sort of operating authority over you, you have a responsibility to submit to that authority. Whether you're a slave or a free man, a Jew or a Gentile, a man or a woman, you have a responsibility to respond through the Spirit of God. And so he, he, he's, he's telling him, he's telling us here that uh, the slave response always when it comes to authority is to honor, to honor that authority. Well, only if they're worthy of honor. No, that's not what it says. There is no if clause here. He doesn't say, slaves, honor your masters if they, right? That's not there. He says, slaves, treat your masters as if they are worthy of honor. He doesn't say, you know, that they are worthy of honor. He says, even if they aren't, you treat them as they are. Why? What is he doing? He's talking about position. He's talking about the position of authority. Where does authority come from? Romans chapter 13, all authority comes from God. He appoints all authority. It doesn't matter who the authority it is. It could be Caesar Nero. It can be your boss. It doesn't matter who the authority is. God is the appointer of all authority. And thus we have to consider that. Man wants to disregard God and become his own authority. Isn't that what 2 Timothy tells us the, the world will be like in the last days? Men will totally reject the authority of God and become their own authority. They'll become their own God. Listen to it. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. But understand this, in the last days, there will become times of difficulty for people. Listen to it. There will become times of difficulty for. That word for means because. Because of what? Because people will be lovers of self. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unpeaceable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having in the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. Did you see that, that the, the reality of the difficulty comes as a result of man rejecting God's authority and becoming his own authority and loving himself? more than he loves anybody else. I promise you, a lot of the difficulties you experience in your life are a result of you, A, either loving yourself or somebody else loving themselves too much. When we love God right, and people in our sphere love God right, our relationships are brought into line, are they not? But when we don't do that, we reject the authority of God, we reject what he has to say about how we're to live our lives, and then everything falls apart. There's a reason why God gives us principles to live by, why he gives us commands to obey. Because those commands will lead us into the right way of living towards one another and towards the Lord. 
And so Paul is addressing the reality of the flesh and the, 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 the desire for, to reject the Lord and to rebel against him. Paul said in Romans chapter 13, verse, verse 2, he said, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Do you hate your boss? Do you think your boss, you think your boss sucks? Is that because he sucks or because you're rejecting his authority? You have to ask yourself that question. Do I, do I dishonor my boss because of who he is or because of who I am? You know, if I'm obeying the scriptures, it doesn't matter who he is. That's pretty much what it says here. It really doesn't matter who he is or what he's doing, does it? It really ultimately uh, matters who I am and who I'm called to be in every situation. There is no if clause here. We are to treat our manager and our boss as worthy of all honor. Why? Paul tells us here, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. What he is saying is that your witness is so much more important than how you're being treated. Your witness, and, and, and particularly if you're a super vocal Christian person, your witness becomes incredibly important in that environment no matter how you're being treated. He said, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. I'm not saying that you submit yourself to abuse at all. You know, if you're in a situation in your job where you're being abused, then you, you need to leave that situation if you're being abused. You have to ask yourself, again, these are really, really questions that you have to think about and pray through. Am I really being abused or do I just take it that way? Am, am I offended by the way that I've been being asked? I think you need to have a heart-to-heart -heart with conversation with your boss, if that's you. You have a conversation with him and you say, Hey, listen, or her, whoever it is, listen, I don't know how we got off on the wrong foot, but I want this relationship to work, and I want, and, and you know, you don't know how far that will go, man. It may not change the situation, but I promise you, that will be reflected in that person's brain the rest of their life. Your witness is far more important than how you're being treated in the moment. If only we could remember that, right? Spirit of God, please help me to remember that when I'm being abused or being mistreated in any way. Help me to respond in, in, in the right way. You might be the only Christian that that person is going to come into contact with before they go meet their maker. You don't know what their, what their you know, what, what, what's, what their future holds. What you know is that the Lord has put you there personally. And if you're a believer, you have to look at it as that's your mission. You know, we're, 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 our job site is our mission field. We're all missionaries, man. You know, you don't have to go to Africa to be a missionary. You're a missionary right where you are. As soon as we leave these doorways, we are missionaries for the Lord. No matter where we go, your home, you're a missionary in your home. You're a missionary to your neighbors. You're a missionary to the grocery um, 
store clerk. You're a missionary everywhere you go. Don't forget that. Be Christ to them. Be Christ to them. Maybe a good read through the Gospels every quarter would be good for you to remind yourself of how Jesus dealt with being ridiculed, being, being beaten down, all of these sorts of things, and, and, and the call that we have to, to be crucified with Christ and allow him to live through us. We're called to put ourselves up on the altar. Show the fruit of the Spirit, not just when things are good, but particularly when things are bad. You will make an un. You will make an, uh, 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 an everlasting impression on an unbeliever's heart and mind when you respond to them in a gospel way through grace and love and kindness and patience. When you respond that way, people don't get it. It's kind of like the, the deer in the headlights thing. It's like, what? What in the world is wrong with you? And here's what I would say. You're not going to do that perfectly. But if you blow it, you better go make it right. You better not just go, oh, well, that happened, no big deal. No, it is a big deal. It's a big deal. God's reputation is on the line here. Not your reputation. Who cares who you are? We care about who he is. We care about making his name famous. And if my name is attached to his name, I better do my best to make sure I cover the bases if I blow it in front of people. And I go and tell them, hey, man, that wasn't the Lord. That was me. I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? That also will make an incredible impact upon a non-believer's life. I think I told you this story, but one time I was on the phone with somebody and um, at my job, and I was like, yeah, you know, we were kind of in a very heated debate, and I'm just like, oh, look at that, and I hung up on him. And immediately, the conviction of the Holy Spirit came down, come, just came upon me, man, and I was like, oh, my goodness, dude. Like, this is like... So trivial. Why would I blow my witness like this? This is stupid. I immediately called the person back up. Surprised they took my phone call, by the way. And they, the, the lady got on the phone, and I said, hey, listen, that was totally out of line. Will you please forgive me? Immediate humility, immediate, absolutely, I'll forgive you. And I, I went on to tell her, listen, I'm a believer, and I don't care what's going on in my life. That's not right. And I'm so sorry for that, and that will never happen again, I promise, two weeks later. No, I didn't, but. <laughs> and then I said, well, Jesus said 70 times 7, so, you know, you got that. No, the point is that we, we don't just repent, but we, we, you know, we repent, meaning we, 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 we learn from what we've done. We don't do it anymore. I find myself in a situation where I am having a hard time biting my tongue. I just take a step back and say, Man, let's, let's, put a, let's put a placehold right here. Let me come back and have a conversation with you because I don't want to blow my witness. I think that's far better than blowing up and then having to go back and ask for forgiveness. Maybe you need to do that with your spouse. Maybe you need to just say, hey, let's take a five-minute break. Let, but make sure you take, make sure you set a time to come back and have that conversation because the, the conversation probably needs to happen. But it needs to happen in a God-honoring way. So, so here, here Paul is telling this, these, these believers who have non-believing bosses that they are absolutely responsible to represent the Lord. How else are they going to? You've heard it, people say, man, oh, I know you Christians. You Christians say all this stuff and you act just like everybody else. 
And let that not be said of you. Make the difference. Be the difference in your respective world, man. Don't be the, the lukewarm Christian who thinks they're a Christian. They're probably even not a Christian, actually. But they think they are. And they just go around train wrecking places and leaving a, a total uh, a bad mark on the Lord's name. Be, be different, man. That's what he's ultimately saying. How do we respond to a Christian boss then? This is great. Listen to what he says here, verse 2. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they're brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. One of the most difficult things, I think, for Christians to learn regarding their faith and, and, and making it interact in their lives is how to work under another believer without taking advantage of their faith. Without taking advantage of their faith, what do I mean? Well, a lot of Christians think that uh, when you work for a believer, you don't have to work. I don't know where they got that. That's not in the employee handbook, I'm pretty sure. But a lot of Christians, when they work for a, a believer, they tone it down rather than step it up. That is totally not the way it should be. That's taking advantage of the situation. That's what Paul is saying here. If you have a believing boss, don't take advantage of him. You know, there's still expectation. The expectation doesn't change. Whatever the job requires is what it requires. You know, but, but, but because your boss is a believer, don't think that that expectation changes. How do I know this? Because I've been a Christian in business before. And I had a lot of employees at one point. And, and I could see it, man, whenever I would, and, and I'll tell you, for myself, it took me a little bit of understanding of how to truly be a believer in the workplace and not, you know, not just, you know, minister with my work. Yes, that's one way to minister, but there's a time to speak, too. There's a time to minister to somebody who just found out that, you know, uh, something's going on in their life and they need prayer. There's a time to do that. But, but you also are getting paid to do your job. So there's a balance in it, right? I used to hire people, and I would tell them, well, the first thing I would tell them is, well, our mission statement is to honor God and to serve others while we provide quality-tested nutraceutical ingredients to enhance health and well-being. Wow, you got that, right? Everybody memorize that with me now. No, I'm <laughs> so, you know, that was what I did for a living. The first part of it was the principles we do business by. The second part of it was what we did. That was our mission statement. So when I would tell people, yeah, um, they would hear, you know, our mission is to honor God and serve others. They'd immediately say, hey, are you guys, are you guys a Christian company? <laughs> and I would say, well, we're believers who are in business. Because I could immediately tell that these people are off into Christian non never, never Neverland or whatever. And they have this idea of this culture that's going to happen as a result of their bosses being believers. Like, man, I can imagine it. We're just going to sit around and talk about Jesus all day. We're going to go to the coffee pot talking about Jesus. We're going to go praying over people. Who knows? I might even get the gift of tongues in this place. Who knows what's going to happen? Listen, there are no Christian businesses. There is no Christian business. There's Christians who are in business, but there is no Christian workplace. You know, when you, when you think about, uh, there, there's an environment you create with Christian principles, but the workplace itself is a means of bringing glory to God in what you're doing, right? So, so the idea of what makes it Christian is the people, not the place. 
they're still called to do. We, we produce dietary supplements. So guess what? We had customers on the other end of the line that needed powder to come out of the, the, the machines and needed to get on a pallet so they could get it to their customers. How are we being a good witness if we're inside talking about Jesus all day? You know, a, a lot of employees struggle with that idea of what it means to be a believer in the workplace. Listen, I said it already. I'll say it again. You're to be the best worker they have. You know, there's a balance in, in representing Christ in what you say and then also what you do. Jesus was mighty in both, listen, word and deed. Word and deed. So we, we, of course, want to evangelize with people, and we need to do that at the appropriate time. Just because your boss is a believer doesn't make it right for you to steal from the company and take time to do things that you want to do. Be careful. Listen, you're being paid to do something. That's a witness. Make sure you do it well. Do not take advantage of that situation. Um, you, need to, you need to respect the fact that your boss is a believer, and you need to you know, do your best to make him shine. How do you do that? Through your work. By, by what you do. How you do things. You know, we... we um, we have to make sure that we perform. You know, every job has a bottom line, folks. And, and they, they operate on a profit margin. And if what those statistics earlier are truly set, are true, you know, 70% of people are totally disengaged in their job, not really given everything they could give to it, what does that do to the bottom line of the business? It affects it, doesn't it? Could you imagine if everybody was engaged in doing their job? That would totally change things. How do I know? Because I owned a business before. You know, a lot of people thought just because there's lots of stuff moving out the door that, that you're making lots of money. That is not the case. You don't know what your uh, expenses are for your business, do you? If you're, unless you're in accounting, you don't know how much it costs them to make something and then all the overhead of payroll and all that kind of stuff. What I'm saying is all of that is irrelevant. The bottom line is, is you have a call to, to bring glory to God in your work, believer or non-believer, Right? And so th that's the call. He's like, man, this guy's hammering us up here, dude. What's his problem? I'm just trying to teach the Bible, you know. Um, but, but, but that's the reality. We should want to serve. We should want to reserve our boss if he's a believer. We should want to elevate him. We should want him to be blessed, be spoken well of by the business because of the job that we're doing. We should do our best to make him shine. You make him look like the smartest, best manager the company has ever seen. You be the best employee that that business has ever seen. Don't make him look bad by underperforming. Don't do that. Don't stand around. Don't, don't, you know, in the name of Jesus, do things that you're not supposed to be doing at work. Do what you're supposed to be doing for the glory of God. And then if you do that, your boss will will definitely get the accolade for it. And hopefully he will give you a pat on the back too. But that's not why we're doing it, right? We're doing it for the glory of God. Do your best and leave the rest up to the Lord. Amen? Representing God in the workplace means remembering that your work is worship. I hope that you have a different view in, in the last 50 minutes about your work and what you're called to do. Maybe a reminder that you know, no matter where your feet go, no matter where you find yourself in life, it's always about the Lord. 
he goes before you. He sets up appointments for you. And we have to be ready at, in season and then out of season. We have to be ready at all times to give a, um, a reason for the hope that lies within us. And so I want to encourage you, man, particularly with those who you spend a third of your life with. They're going to know you better than probably anybody knows you. They're going to see your, your, your good days, your bad days. They're going to see uh, pretty much everything about you. They're going to get to know you. So at the end of the day, here's what they should walk away with. That person truly does live out their faith. That person truly does care about people. You can see that they're a loving, kind person. You know, even if they're unbelievers, they should be able to see the, 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 the premise of love and operation in your life. Be the best employee that you can be. And the Lord will take care of you, I promise. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. And Lord, we pray that you would help us even now, Lord, to, Lord, to even begin to maybe change some things that we're doing at our job, Lord. Maybe we need to make some things right that we have, we have done, even if it's been two, three years ago, Lord. Help us to be the kind of believers that you're calling us to be, Lord, that we wouldn't, we wouldn't misrepresent you. We wouldn't leave a bad mark on your name. If we blow it, Lord, we would make it right. Lord, help us to, the, the, the microphone is always on in our lives. Help us to be careful about what we say, about how we live, Lord. And uh, may, we, may you get all the glory. We lift you up, Lord. You are the one we live for. Help our lives to, to sing the song of, Lord, I love you. You're my king. You're my Lord. I want to do anything I can to please you and honor you. We sing that song through our actions. So help us, Father. Anoint us with your spirit. I pray this morning for anyone who is struggling in their job, Lord, and hearing this word saying, yeah, but you don't know my boss. Lord, will you give them clarity right now? on how they, can, how they can respond in a way that would honor you and make an impact in that person's life, Lord. Help them to just be gracious, seasoned with salt in their words, Lord. I just pray for an anointing of your spirit. Even for some, Lord, who will encounter these, these maybe some situations afterward, will you bring these things to mind? By your spirit, we pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. Pray you continue to guide and keep us this morning as we close in this song now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's word.